On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at Salesforce learning from Microsoft's AI mistakes, how selling is way different to Japan. That blew my mind reading this article, which we'll come on to in a second. And Victor, Victor Antonio, my co-host, pulling off the first ever presentation within a presentation at Outbound 2021. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Sales.org and joining me is co-host of this show, sales royalty, sales legend, Victor Antonio. How's it going, sir? It is going good. Uh, Outbound is done, so I can relax a little more. I got to be honest. It was ti- I was mentioning on the pre-interview, we were like uh, talking where, where it was just tiring. Well, just a lot of stuff going on. And let me open up with this. It would have been better if I'd gotten a good night's sleep, which begs the question, well, why didn't I get a good night's sleep? Well, I'll tell you why, Will. First night I'm in the hotel, uh, I finally get to my room. It's like 10 o'clock, 10.30. I'm in bed, right? All of a sudden, ran, ran, little baby, high pitched screaming. Oh, I'm like, oh, Lord, I can't sleep. So anyway, they finally get the kid to bed. I'm in, Now I'm asleep about 11.30, 12 o'clock. I start falling asleep. One o'clock in the morning, apparently there's a honeymoon going on next door. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I need some sleep. That was night one. Night two, I can't make this up, Will. In the middle of the night, I finally get to sleep. I'm, I'm like, okay, good. It's a good, you know, I got to get some good rest. Somewhere around three in the morning, I start like feeling something on me. <laughs> and I'm like scratching myself. I'm not making this up. I turn on the lights and there's ants all over my bed. Oh, damn. Oh, oh, I couldn't make this up. I was slapping them away. Then I said, wait a minute, I got to take pictures of this. So I took pictures of it. And anyway, they moved my room and they gave me a nice cheap bottle of wine for my, my troubles. And that was it. But other than that, Outbound was great. <laughs> I was just about to say, I was just about to criticize you, take the piss, Victor, saying that someone who travels, speak on stage as much as yourself, surely you take earplugs with you when you when you do these stays, right? I did. I, I actually put earplugs in. It just wasn't working well. Oh, I mean, wow. I jammed them all the way into my drum. And I, it just, I what I realized, I need to get better earplugs. I thought I had good ones, but apparently certain activities seem to penetrate. <laughs> The earbuds. <laughs> that, well, that. When, when a headboard is just crashing against the wall behind your head, there's not much you can do about that, I don't think. There's not um, much. But then the like, ants, there's, no, there's nothing you could have done to like fend off the ants. That's just, was it a shitty hotel or was it just unfortunate? Unfortunate. Uh, the Embassy Suites is actually usually nice hotels. I just got, it's just bad luck on my side. But anyway, we survived. Let's get into it as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First headline here, we've got some sales news, how Salesforce learned from Microsoft's mistakes to dominate in AI. This is from fool.com, Motley Fool website. And so let's get into this because we're talking constantly. And we actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago on This Week in Sales, that Salesforce seem to be just slightly slow with the AI rollout. They don't seem to be bombarding the marketplace, talking about AI as much as what mm. other brands do, even though Einstein, their AI is clearly miles ahead of most of the competitors. And we talked about this idea that perhaps it's the Apple effect where Apple plod along, plod along, and then release a feature that everyone else has had for a year, but they do it better. And then that's the hmm. defined feature. Everyone copies Apple and they do it again and mm-hmm. again. So maybe this is the same. So there's an article from fool.com, uh, and I'm quoting here, one of the biggest pieces in Salesforce's growth story that's talked about the least both in earnings reports and otherwise. Salesforce built Einstein, the company's sales and productivity artificial intelligence bot, by studying ethical AI after Microsoft's AI bot infamously adopted offensive behavior in 2016. So are you familiar with this this Microsoft bot? Um, I I did not. I got to be honest. I did not know about this. I actually had to look this up after I saw your notes. 
Sure. So th- there was there was a couple of things that the AI, AI bot did uh, not so well. One thing was it went on a tirade on Twitter, basically saying uh, unsolicited things to unsolicited people that it probably shouldn't have. And it was just regurgitating what it was finding in the Twitter environment. But obviously, because it's a Microsoft bot, it should have some kind of filtering. So Salesforce are trying to learn from this. And this is one of the reasons why Salesforce has been slower, perhaps to roll out the Einstein AI, because they want to learn from the rest of the marketplace as they make mistakes. So I'll quote again from the article. Simply put, Salesforce has the edge in sales intelligence AI because it beat Microsoft and other major players to the punch in several years, providing low-code sales AI solutions. Furthermore, Furthermore, Victor, Salesforce's massive market share and impressive customer retention, they've typically got above 90% customer retention, make it hard for competitors to catch up. And most importantly, the article goes on to talk about the fact that Salesforce has a 20% share of the CRM marketplace. So they've got essentially unlimited customer data to train the AI on. And when you're competing against that, you've only got 0.05% of the CRM marketplace, even though you might be a $100 million organization. Clearly, you've got a much smaller data set. And so this uh, Motley Fool article is basically saying you should probably buy some Salesforce shares because they're just going to dominate this marketplace. They've got the lead in AI. And clearly, this is the future of CRM and sales enablement. What do you say to that, the- Victor? No, no, I love it. I, by the way, I love that. I love that phrase, providing low-code sales AI. That's pretty cool, actually. Actually, it's simple. Uh, you said their market share is 20%. Did their market share go down? I thought it was like 24 26% at one time. And I'm wondering if more uh, you know, competition is jumping into the market. But I, when I looked up this, uh, it's called Tay, right? The AI bot that Microsoft sent out. I thought it was interesting because I, I guess it started repeating like racial slurs, a lot of slanderous stuff. And then people kept like feeding it. Uh-huh. Like they kept, tro- they kept trolling they, <laughs> they kept trolling the bot. And the bot kept just like, it just, it almost like spun out of control, right? It's almost like spun out of control. Uh, I think they replaced it. I think I saw on Wikipedia with uh, something called Zo, XO which is their new bot, whatever it is. But uh, it is interesting. Uh, your framing is interesting because you're right. Maybe they did learn after seeing that. And anybody who understands how machine learning works, realize one of the biggest challenges, is how do you remove any type of bias within the algorithm? Because the bias is usually based on the data it receives. So how do you, like, how do you, how do you make a robot ethical, right? And give it more. How do you make a robot ethical when very few human beings are ethical, even though we try and project that we are. We all have these cognitive biases and 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 opinions and thoughts that have been programmed into us by our parents and our environment. So how do you even strip all away all that stuff away? It's insanely complicated. And that is interesting. It's a conundrum, right? It's almost like a Gordian knot. You can't teach something to be ethical when you're not ethical. It's almost like that's an impossibility. But I think it's I think we can get approximated, I guess. I don't know. But I think it's interesting that you're saying that Salesforce saw that and said, wait a minute, let's do a slow rollout with Einstein. And I th- I mean, I've seen some of the Einstein stuff. Uh, it's it's pretty good. Pretty great content. So, I mean, they're ahead. Uh, I've not invested in Salesforce. Have you invested in Salesforce? Can I ask that question? Uh, no, because I've worked with Salesforce in the past mm-hmm. and you know, maybe I'll work with them in the future. Clearly, HubSpot's are a big partner at the moment. And sure. uh, I'm, I'm moving forward. So I don't, it's obviously, public companies, I don't invest in any of them that I do business with. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure of the ethics myself of having a sponsor, a partner on the show that I am invested 
financially within the results, if that makes sense. Sure. That makes sense. I, I just thought you might have had a portfolio of stuff because I, I haven't met anybody who has a uh, Salesforce, you know, stock or anything. I asked that question, what do you invest in? Uh, but apparently they're doing it super well, man. So by the way, speaking of investment, I, I wanted to bring this one up because this goes back to the CRM. So Intro Hive, have you ever heard of Intro Hive? I've not, no. <clears throat> I don't think that. I've not heard of any of these companies that are getting tens, hundreds of millions of investment. Maybe we should That's go why. and do a I, I, crazy start. Just suck <laughs> some money out of the market. Let's go build a CRM. Yeah. This week in sales CRM. Uh, so anyways, Intro High, which I've never heard of either, raises $100 million to automate CRM. Uh, article by Kyle Wiggers. And this guy, it was on VentureBeat. Uh, but they, they had some interesting data points. Dude, think uh, that you've got to be careful with that surname. Was that w w Wiggers? <laughs> Wiggers? <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm gonna let that go. So anyway, it's a, <laughs> Intro Hive, a software as a service SaaS CRM automation platform, announced today that it raised a hundred million dollars in Series C funding. I mean, you're right; everybody's raising all these crazy dollar amounts. Uh, the, the CRM includes the CRM itself, marketing automation, business intelligence technology, syncs and enriches you know e information from emails and other business systems, and again, scoreboards. Now, you know, this whole business dashboard has all this coming together. But there's some interesting data points I wanted to talk to you about, Will. Uh, you know, the, the, the round of funding, congratulations, intro high. But, you know, Gartner has some numbers that supported, you know, this press release. And the first one is this. That, that's perhaps why Gartner predicts that by 2025, we're talking four years away, 60% of B2B sales organizations will transition from experience and intuition-based selling to data-driven selling, merging their sales process, application data, analytics into a single operational practice. What say you, Will? I don't understand how that's not how people work right now. It seems... What, what, if I... I'm, I'm almost slightly <laughs> lost for words the, the number there of... <laughs> There's so much data. Maybe people are doing this inadvertently. Maybe this is people are doing this right. informally right now. And what this is saying is that there will be a dashboard where you can use numbers formally to sell against. Whereas right now, perhaps you are somewhat A-B testing the cold emails that you're doing, or you're somewhat testing the uh, cold call, the beginning of cold calls or, or the framework that you're using to do that. Uh, maybe what this is saying is formally, companies will say we're doing this on the back of this piece of data moving forward. Uh, but informally, people have got to be doing this already. Otherwise, they're crazy. Yeah, I think so. And the whole transition from experience and intuition-based selling, can you really get rid of that? I mean, I get the moving towards data selling to kind of orient you, but can you really move away from experience slash intuition-based selling? Well, isn't the intuition or gut feeling or um, industry knowledge what you're paying for for a salesperson? If you could just use data... Uh, it's it's chatbots, it's marketing automation, um, you know, it's automation within the CRM, it's customer service calling to check up on things as opposed to someone who is a an expert in a field, uh, you know, product uh, expert calling upon a, a person and offering their advice and doing the consultative sell, which is you know cliche in its own right that terminology, but that's typically what uh, you know complex B two B sales is all about, right? Yeah, I, I yeah. 
I'm looking I, when I read that I go eh, maybe I'm gonna give Gartner a break here. I'm usually pouncing on Gartner, so I'm trying to be nice to Gartner this week. But I think they're full of it the way they make that statement. See, I said I'm gonna be nice to them, but then I just <laughs> said they're full of it uh, because I don't think you can take that away a hundred percent. I think it's something that's so intertwined. Data and intuition selling or experience selling will always be intertwined that you can't extricate one from the other. So to say that we'll move from this to that, I don't believe in absolutes. So I think they're wrong, Gardner. But anyway, so moving on to the second point in that public uh, Hold on press a second, Is there potentially an element here of me and you having what's called the burden of knowledge? Of we know how things are supposed to be done. But people in the marketplace with the, I'm talking about sales managers, sales leadership now, who have their head in the sand, who haven't changed, who don't listen to content like this, who go to work, don't improve themselves, aren't really bothered about the organization, and they come home. Could we have too much, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, we're both uh, massive, I'm not I'm not trying to toot our own horse here, haunt, uh, I'm saying that inadvertently, do we know too much about this, that we make assumptions that people should be selling in a, a modern way when perhaps the marketplace just isn't. That could be. That could be. We'll never know. I mean, it's hard to know that, right? But basically what you just said, we're smarter than everybody else. That's, that's what I'm trying and not to say. <laughs> but the better knowledge is the opposite. If we were smart, we wouldn't be burdened by the knowledge. Yeah, so I think we call it here the curse of knowledge. Sure. But you call it the burden of knowledge. Same thing. But but I think it's, you know, when, when I see companies today that are not, I mean, a lot of companies... What do you think of the percentage of companies that actually have a sales process? What would be that percentage? I because I think the last number I heard was like twenty-five to thirty percent. That's insane. No, well, so yeah, but okay. So this this is goes back to what I've said before. Informally, yeah. everyone has a sales process. Otherwise, sure. you're gonna call call people to close and knock on the door and assume that you're having a meeting when you've never spoke to them before. So informally, there is a sales process. Everyone knows that there's a funnel. You know. You, you told someone who's enough to do with sales, they'll know what a sales funnel is. They'll understand that concept. So informally, uh, anyone who's ever going to get close to hitting target ever has had some kind of informal sales process. But you're right in that there might not be a corporate playbook or the small business playbook. It might be going on, maybe this is what it's talking about. It's going on gut instinct. It's going on um, you know, what you're being incentivized in that moment of, hey, this quarter, we just need more leads. Oh, shit, this quarter, we, just, we need to get deals done. Maybe that's what it's alluding to as opposed to we do this, we do this, we do this, and then hopefully we get X results. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I guess I read the statement and it, it, I have cognitive dissonance because they assume that we're rational agents, <laughs> that salespeople are rational agents. They're not. What, anyway, is, what does that mean, the, Victor, for anyone who isn't familiar with that phrase? It, it, when we believe that human beings, if you show somebody logically why something should be a certain way and you can prove it, that they'll actually react on that data. Mm -hmm. That's a rational agent, right? You'll say, hey, well, one plus one is two. There's no difference. Uh, or if you show somebody, look, if you change this to get that, you'll get this. And you walk them through rationally, they agree, but they won't do it. They won't act on it. Like a lot of people know they should have a standardizer uh, playbook or sales process. They know that, but they still don't have one. That's a perfect example. Studies have shown that if you have a, a process, you're going to close 35 to 45% more sales, depending on which study you believe, right? But yet we still don't have one. That's what I mean by not being a rational agent. You know the rationality, but you don't execute. So I'm wondering in this case, when, when we assume that if people have perfect data, they'll, they'll perform perfectly, I think that's a mistake. Yep. And so, so I think there's always gonna be that margin of error. Data will try to get us, I think data selling is gonna to try to corral us, kind of put some guardrails on our irrationality. That's what I, how I like to look at. That makes sense or is it just me? That makes sense. I've got a total, this is just me massively trying to suck uh, value from you here. 
how does data stifle innovation? In that if data tells us you should do this and you should do this because we've got evidence that that's worked in the past, well, that's uh, pigeonholing you. That's putting you uh, blinders on or blinkers on so that the big innovation could be right next to you. And the people in the marketplace who are going, oh, I'm going to try texting. But your data says, we're not going to do that because this works instead. Does data, does AI stifle innovation? Is there any data and studies on this? I, I think you answered your own question, right? Because if you do it the way the machine says you have to do it, you're not looking at options. And we know because we've sold it in a B2B complex sales situation where sometimes, like for example, you go to the customer premise, you're talking to the customer and you notice something and you go, hmm, what's that? And it's it could be a new product idea that you get just by looking at something a different way. You can't get a bot to do that. You know, say, hey, by the way, what if we add this, 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 combine it like this to sell it like this? That's why I think the intuition experience comes in. Yeah. And you can't get rid of that. You can't you can't data that out, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. So I think they're a little hard with this one. But look at this next data point here. Harvard Business Review found that there's a 10 times drop in lead qualification when reps, reps wait longer than five minutes to respond. And a 400% decrease when they respond within 10 minutes versus five minutes. Now, I think I've seen these data points before. I don't know if I believe them though, do you? 10 times drop in lead qualification when reps wait longer than five minutes to respond. We've talked about even this data point or some of the data point in the past. Mm -hmm. And the analogy that I always use with this is if Motley Fool, we just, we talked about them a second ago, the website, um, investing website, right? If I fill in a form for some investment newsletter, I want a response back in five minutes from some essentially low level salesperson that's going to help me uh, along the sales process. If I fill in a form on the Berkshire Hathaway website and Warren Buffett says he's going to call me in three months and I'm going to get five minutes with him, I'm ecstatic that it's going to take three yeah. months. It doesn't matter because it's Warren frigging Buffett who's going to call me back and <laughs> give me investing advice. Yeah, three yeah. months. I like make it make it 12 months and let's do an hour's phone call instead. So I think data points like this, we've got to be careful because it's all relative. Are we talking about are we talking about B2B? Are we talking about complex sales? Are we talking about essentially here, could this be just customer service calls that we're talking about as opposed to sales specifically? Right. Anyway, I hate that data point. Just want to run it by you. About this one. Now we get to the <laughs> juicy data point. Oh, I'm rubbing my hands on this one if you can't see it. The CRM, again, this is still under the same article. We're talking about Intro Hive raising $100 million. And this is kind of their, some of these data points are the rationale for why this company is really taking off. This one's interesting. The CRM automation market is anticipated to be worth $96.5 billion with the B by 2028, according to Grand View Research. Beyond IntroHive, it encompasses platforms, swallows, gobbles up, munches up platforms like Gong, Dooley, and Squelch. Hmm. I like that. Because I remember I've been, I've been saying that, I think you maybe been screaming it with me, is that some of these companies are going to get bought out or those, I guess those, um, whatever, those features are going to be stuck into a CRM. It's already going to be included. And so why is Gong and these other companies like Outreach getting all this money if companies like this one, like Intro High, will be able to do what they're doing and pull it all in? Under one umbrella. I don't, I don't really understand what's happening in this market. I think there's I a lot of people with a lot of money that see something is happening. Because this is an emulation of the marketing automation market, which blew up like five, 10 mm. years ago, right? Mm. So uh, I'd caveat all that I'm going to say here with 
Clearly, venture capitalists know a lot more about all of this than what I do. So, so my opinion is my opinion's almost uh, non-appropriate here. Like, don't make any investment or or like workplace uh, like advice from take, don't take any workplace advice from what I'm going to say. But I don't understand why there's so much money being bounced around because I don't know that a lot of the problems that these companies are trying to solve are all that clearly the technical difficult, technically difficult. But I think a lot of the money and we talked about this before as well on this week in sales. I think a lot of the money is just going to use acquisition because whoever becomes Salesforce gobbles up a quarter of the marketplace will then remain dominant over the next you know, 20 years that this space is valid. Um, so if you're not throwing money after player one, two, or three, and you're going after a new startup and you're hoping for innovation, that to me, again, I know nothing. I'm thick as anything. I don't know anything yeah. about this. But that, doesn't, <laughs> that does not strike me as... As a as a good way to spend my money, I'd be throwing money at yeah. Gong <clears throat> Outreach, the the, yeah. the the companies that are like quote unquote unicorns, but have got a large market share right now. Surely they're going to dominate the marketplace moving forward. Well, this this past week, uh, I'm working with a company. I'm coaching a company. It's a financial investment company, right? And this is me not recommending it. They mentioned it to me. Said, "Hey, Victor, we're thinking of going forward with a company called Gong. Have you ever heard of them?" <laughs> I'm like, really? Okay. I said, yes, I have. And so we're thinking of pulling the trigger. What is your opinion? I said, no, 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 no. Don't base your, your decision on my opinion. Your marketing guy says they want it. Your salespeople say they want it. You know, listen to them. They're, they're, they're front and center. Anyway, they pulled the trigger on Gong. To make a long story short, uh, I got to see a full demo from a manager frontlines manager slash frontline standpoint of what Gong offers. That thing is a beast. It has stuff I didn't even think of. Do you know what I mean? I was like, and the way they do it, I got I walked away with a totally different impression of Gong, uh, a higher level of respect for the stuff of the stuff they're doing because you can see it. You know what I mean? And what they're trying to do. And they ran through some of the functionalities. It was quite impressive. And for any company to try to emulate even just what Gong is doing, it's going to be really hard. There's a lot of running, if you know what I mean. I go back to our, our original premise, or at least mine was, that a company like Einstein, uh, Salesforce, should buy a gong unless they're already developing it themselves. But uh, but again, I think they're valued now at seven point something billion dollars. So you better come with a, a big checkbook after gong. So anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. Well, that article was from VentureBeat.com and you can find all the articles, <laughs> all the news that we talk about in this week in sales over at unsurprisingly, thisweekinsales.com, where you can leave your comments and you can recommend Magical. any news that you want us to cover, news, events, any sales gossip that you want us to cover on the show, you can post it on there and we'll get back to you. We love gossip. We love gossip. We love, gossip. We love sales gossip. Yeah, we love gossip. We well, love gossip. Give us some stuff. Let's get into some sales training news, Victor. And have you ever been to Japan before I, I have never. this? So, no, but I do know this. Konnichiwa, Otashiwa, Victor Antonio this. That's how I would introduce myself. Because you're into samurai films, aren't you? I thought you'd have yes. been to Japan. Yeah, no, I've been dying to go to Japan. Yeah. And so, you know, be the samurai freak here. And so I am dying to go to Japan. My daughter went last year. She said it was a fantastic, or two years ago, it was a fantastic experience. So it's on the to-do list. Japan, China, and Ireland. And Scotland, if I can get over there. Why? So I'm uh, quarter Irish. We go to Ireland uh, every other uh. year to see family, right? Why Ireland? Well, because I'm I'm one point two percent Irish. <laughs> sure, you know, <laughs> so there, there's a reason for that. Uh, do, do you know? I mean, the history of Puerto Rico. You know, we had 
I, I know his, I have no idea of the history of Puerto Rico. Oh yeah, yeah. We 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 we've imported a few Irish people into Puerto Rico, so you will find some like redheaded Puerto Ricans. Wow. Speak no. Yeah, I mean, you should come to our family uh, gathering because uh, our his Puerto Rico is an interesting island because it started out with Indians, right? Then the Europeans arrived. Then the black slave trade began, right? And then we started importing Chinese, and we had some Irish folks there. So we got everything. We got the spectrum. Mm-hmm. It is a, it's a beautiful thing. It's like the United Nations. Uh, and in Ireland, because I've always loved the movies, I, I love Tour Lura Lura. Uh, By Yon Body Brain is one of my favorite songs. I can sing at least the first two stanzas of that thing. Uh, and I just, I've always loved Irish culture, you know? And I think, I think when I watched John Wayne, remember John Wayne did that movie? Was it The Big Man? You ever see that? Oh, man, it was great. It, was, it shows Ireland in all its glory. Man, I was love it, man. I, I, to me, Ireland has such rich history. I would love to go there and just visit and see it. Because what's interesting to me is I've got a, he was a long lost uncle. I found him um, like four years ago, maybe five years ago now. Um, yeah. And he's uh, born and bred Chicago. So I've been to Chicago a bunch of times to go and visit them. And he and his, uh, so he was adopted over in Ireland. Um, and, you know, he's in his uh, late 50s now. But he and his family and everyone I spoke to and speak to when I go over there, they adore Ireland. They want to go to Ireland. And no one's really that asked about England. But England's got way more to do for tourists than what Ireland has. <laughs> Ireland's just fields, farms, some, you know. I know, but the, the, the have a nice natural beauty. And stuff. But everything yeah. that you think is um, from a, like, a, you know, the vista <laughs> element of Ireland, you get all that and better in England anyway. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something about the history of Ireland, but that in Scotland, I mean, maybe it's been more glamorized in movies over here than mm-hmm. Britain, you know, England. So that could be it. Plus, we're still probably a little peeved with England. So, you know, well, being Americans. Uh, my uncle Jerry is still peeved <laughs> at the English as well and, uh, and different things that went on with the Irish that we uh, abused over the past yeah. couple of hundred years. So, yeah, I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll not, I'm not taking the blame for anything that my ancestor did. Um, okay. But yeah, we'll move back to Japan. And this blew my mind slightly. This genuinely, like, actually confused me when I read through this article. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So I'll quote from the article here, and this is from Forbes.com. It's entitled, Common Sales Approaches in Japan. And I'm quoting here, I'm going to make an incredibly broad general statement here, but in my experience, they are true for salespeople in Japan. How do I know this? I've been teaching sales training here since 1963. So this sales trainer is clearly tenured in this space. He says, asking for the order is typically avoided. Saying no is culturally taboo. So the best way to avoid having to say it or hear it is to save everyone's face and leave the outcome deliberately vague. Cle- I would agree with that. Versus Western selling, this is this is insane. It's, it's turned it on its head. A few more points here. The sell- By the way, just, I, just, I, I want to emphasize because every sure. time I watch samurai movies, they never, add, they never say no. They just either articulate a different point or reiterate the point. And you're like, okay, that was not resolved, but then, but it was resolved. Well, it's resolved you know what I mean? Come and just chop someone's head off at the end. No, of no, 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 no. That, <laughs> it, it's it, it's resolved because you see the look on the person's face, and they'll admit, you know, that you know when they were they've been verbally bested by someone who has you know better rhetoric than them. So it's really interesting. So that makes sense to me from a historical uh, standpoint. So I don't know that much about Japanese history, but I know. Um, you know, when, when they shut off the borders, they implemented a class system uh, and all that kind of thing. That makes sense. But then in, in the modern 2021, as we record this, it seems like an insane way to to do business. And clearly there's a whole bunch of mega high profile Japanese co- uh, companies that do incredible business uh, globally. 
Um, and then another few points on this of selling in Japan as well. When the seller meets any resistance from the buyer, often the first reflex is to drop the price by 20%. Western sales managers would be, um, can you read that word for me? Apoc apoplectic. 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 What does that mean, Victor? Yeah. I don't know. There'd be like a conniption. What is that? I don't like know a... what that means either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> throw a fit. Maybe they throw a fit or the... a confused. I'm, I'm, you keep reading. I'll look it up. Uh, and uh, so Western sales managers would be that word if that was the default objection handling mechanism. Here, defending your price through explaining the value is thrown overboard and simple price point reductions are the preferred lever. Objection handling skills are also underdeveloped because the seller tends to see the buyer not as a king, but as a, a god. A seller's job is to do everything that the god wants. Victor, mm. uh, do you feel bad for salespeople in Japan? Oh, it seems they're like being abused over there. <laughs> they're being abused over there. Yeah, By just... the way, apoplectic means when you're indignant. So Western sales managers would be indignant if this was the default objection handling mechanism, which would make sense, right? Because we don't just drop, you know, dropping a twenty, giving a twenty percent discount is like what you did what. So that's in, that's the apoplectic piece. But in terms of treat the customer as God, as some type of deity, is what they're saying. I did not know that. And, that, and, the, and the final point I pulled from the article, it's it's weird. <laughs> the the buyer completely controls the sales conversation. They demand the pitch be made straight up, so that they can. There's some weird words in this post. Yeah. Lacerate. Is that right? Yeah. Lacerated. Try, Lacerate it to make sure. I mean, cut it to make so sure that lacerate. all the risk has been cut out. Buyers uh. are incredibly risk averse in Japan. This is a zero default, no errors, no mistakes business culture. Victor, my question to you is: one, could you sell in Japan? Yes, I could. Two, definitely could sell. Yes, I could. And and considering the market that we're selling against. So you'd be yeah. in the in the the marketplace competing against people with uh, you know, uh, the values and, and 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 selling processes as we've just outlined. Do you think you'd do better selling in a Western market, or with what you know and how you sell and your knowledge of this space, would you be better compared to the competition selling in a Japanese market? Western market. I don't think I can outsell it myself. And yeah, that's, I think I could do well in, in the Japanese market, but I also know there's some nuances that are probably not covered in here, right? Is that Westerners are viewed with much more suspicion. That would be one, right? Uh, there is a caste system, right? And there, there is some type of, uh, I don't want to use the word discrimination. That's too hard, but there's a lot of, uh, what's the word? I'm, delineation. <laughs> of where you belong and where I belong. So there's a lot of delineation. So that would make it difficult if you're not from that culture, right? So you'd have to be immersed in that culture. But I think if it's a, if it's a, me and another American starting out fresh, going to Japan, I think I would win. Fair enough. That's what I, I would say. I don't think I'd cope. I don't think I would, just with the, the programming and the social norms that I'm used to, I think I'd really struggle to like kiss ass enough to have success there. It, you know what they do is they, it, it, we view it as kissing ass, but they view it as complimenting and, and raising the other person up, right? Because that's a sign of respect. And that's the other person doesn't want to lose face. Now, when you, when you lift somebody else up, what happens is the person, if you lift them up too high, will feel guilty and will then begin to reciprocate and lift you up. Because when there's too much of a difference, you know, this, this, sure. you know, this, this, you know what I mean? It's too much, and you see that in these. I guess I got that from the movies. <laughs> like when the guy goes, you know, you're basically embarrassing me at this point, hmm. you know. Uh, so when I watch Samurai movies, I, I, I like when 
you want to raise the other person, but if the other person feels that like they're elevated too high, they're embarrassed, and then they begin to elevate the other person or lower themselves to meet the other person. So I think, but I also think it requires a patience that we here in the U.S. don't have, a patience and a reflective style of selling. By reflective, I mean that you don't react immediately, you don't you don't reach, you let them hand it to you. So it requires that type of mode of selling. Very what, different than here. What I'm sure there is differences. I'm sure they're not as stark. Yeah. But what do you see as a difference? Yeah. Even with engaging with me every week, Victor, what do you see as a difference between um, American culture, social norms, and I, I appreciate America's, you know, it's a continent, you know, essentially, isn't it? Versus uh, Europe's a continent as well. But especially, you know, UK, Europe, uh, English people, what do you see as the main difference, either selling into that marketplace or just engaging with me, uh, you know, every week? What, what do you see as a difference there? I think when I was selling into the market in Europe, uh, one of the things I noticed is that you have to be, you guys don't like us being too aggressive, right? The ugly American. I, we got that. It's the easy one. But I also think you have to have a higher caliber of understanding of your product or services and what you have to offer. In other words, you guys have zero patience for sizzle. You're like, Let, let's, let's have some steak here, please. And I think that's one of the things I learned that, you know, when you get there, it's really about business and trying to solve problems. I think you guys like the direct conversation. Uh, you guys like to ask a lot of questions and you're not afraid to do so. But even if you're offended, you will not allow yourself to show that you've been offended. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not quick to bark back like somebody here in the U.S. So I, I think you guys hide your resentment a little better. Would, if you, you don't like the sales person. you less assertive? I say so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think you guys can be assertive when you want to. Piss you guys off enough, <laughs> you, you'll do. You'll be like, ah, you'll come after like Braveheart type of thing. Uh, but but I think that we're more aggressive in our positioning. And I think in the UK, you tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the sales methodologies and processes follow, lag the US a little bit. Not by a lot. I'm, I'm talking about a year, maybe. You know what I mean? Like where other countries, like in Latin America, there's a three to five year lag. You know, so you guys are right there. So that's how I see it. I'm, I'm not sure if that's true. I think that'd be difficult to measure. But I think is. there is cultural differences where a sales methodology might seem like it's lagging behind um, mm. in that less assertive, less like more likely to just go and be polite in a meeting that, okay, these numbers don't work, goodbye, as opposed to getting laughed out of the room uh, with perhaps a more assertive or more jovial uh, kind of American market, perhaps. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I give you one specific example. I remember when the Challenger sale came out, right? The, you know, the CEB came out, the Challenger sale. And I thought Americans were quick to adapt it quickly. Mm -hmm. And everybody was still trying to figure it out. Like, what is this thing, right? You know, 57% into the buying cycle. And then eventually people came around to understanding, oh, that's what they're talking about, buyer journeys. Because I think here in the US, we're, we're not good at a lot of things, but I think what we're great at is marketing and selling. Yep. And I think we're, we create the the phraseologies, the terminologies that people use globally. And that's why, I mean, everybody else lags that because they're not leading the, the the methodology race. They're basically following the methodology race. Now, what that time frame behind is, I don't know, that lag time, I don't know. I think that depends, though, on the market that you're talking about. If you're talking about Apple, clearly messaging, marketing, uh, uh, user adoption, sucking into ecosystems, clearly incredible. And I can name 25 different US companies. But then if you look at perhaps the financial markets, maybe that type of selling doesn't work so well when you're trying to do a multi-billion dollar like, merger acquisition or whatever it is, or trying to get funding. 
And so I think, well, I don't think I know from um, the numbers, the data from London as a financial district and a financial hub in Europe that uh, perhaps a different sales approach works differently there as well, um, which is interesting. I agree with that. I, I agree with that, actually. I, I should have been more specific. I really, it, it does depend on the vertical you're selling into. So from my myopic perspective of selling B2B, long sales cycle technology products, that's how I would see it. For sure. But that yeah, makes sense. But I, I get that. All right. So anyway, I came across this article by Gartner again. They just keep stepping in my way every single time. Uh, four levers, or just to be correct with uh, my man Will here, four levers to boost pipeline generation from sales development by Dan Gottlieb Gardner. Now, I'm going to go through the four points, but it's the fourth one I want to get to that I want to talk to you about. Well, the first one is four levers to boost pipeline generation from sales development is one, create specialized SDR roles to narrow the scope by focusing on a narrow scope of sales motion. Industry verticals or account type SDRs can develop deeper expertise into a subject. Anything shocking there? Yes, Victor. An SDR typically, and I don't mean it should be this way, lowest of the sales hierarchy in pay, in um, authority within an organization, in even respect in a lot of ways. By the way, Will is saying that, not Victor Antonio. It's, Will Barron is saying that, I, not Victor Antonio. I don't think that is controversial. People okay. join organizations in an SDR role and then move on to account management, right. management, uh, and um, mm -hmm. customer success, whatever it is. And that's probably the way it's always going to be because a lot of the SDR job is grunt work, right? Cold emailing, cold calling, booking meetings for other people. How are you going to specialize SDRs in industry verticals, in account types, in deeper expertise on a subject when it's an entry-level role and almost every single SDR, this is a sweeping statement, but almost every single SDR is trying to get out of that SDR role as quick as possible to get into an account management role because that's where the real money is. By the way, and to your point, I think we talked about this, right? That the average SDR lifespan in a company is like 1.6 months or something yep. like that. It was yep. it was less than two years. Mm -hmm. I know that. So to your point, uh, I think what the article Gartner, see, even you're attacking Gartner now. I love it. Now you're on my side attacking Gartner. Because uh, I'm, think, I'm thinking, okay, unless these are special SDRs, because time to value, let's go back to time to value. How, how long does it take you to ramp up to really understand an industry or a vertical? It's going to take too long. By that time, they're gone. But I'm just, I'm just highlighting what they said here, Will. That's all I'm doing. I'm just highlighting. Number two, when it comes to boosting pipeline generation with SDRs, shift data responsibilities to more cost-effective roles. Using SDRs to perform large volumes of manual data. I can, I can, I can hear you say, I can hear inside your head already. Oh, uh, volumes of manual data uh, is an inefficient use of selling resource. What say you will to shifting the data responsibilities away from the SDR? What do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to think you say, Victor, that's what we hired him for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, basically, what I was going to say is you hire... And so I would like to raise SDRs up. I'll say this. SDRs, it's a, it seems like I've never done it. It seems like a crappy role to start off with. And it's the way it's framed up in most organizations, again, is just get your head down for a year, two years, and you'll we'll give you the big the big dog jobs after the fact. So with that said, SDRs should be a, you know, it should be more of a career role if you want the specialism within it. But you want to remove large volumes of data entry from a relatively not low, but not high paid role by hiring more people to do more jobs. Surely the head hiring two low, medium salaried individuals is going to cost way more in overheads, office space, management than just hiring 
more SDRs within a team doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and by the way, the reason I'm highlighting this article, because I'm like, and I, again, I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, jump all over Gartner here, but part of me is going, really, 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 as I'm going through this, let me just go to the fourth one, because this is where I want to get to, uh, in, the, in, the, in the purpose of time here. Scale managers impact with conversation intelligence. Here's what it says. SDRs require approximately four to six hours of one-on-one -on -one coaching per month. Did you know that, Will? Four Would you agree hours. with that? I, I, I mean, it sounds reasonable. One hour of coaching a month, a week? Yeah, it's a little over an hour, yeah. Four to six hours, a little over an hour if you do six. Managers can scale their impact with guidance from conversation intelligence technology. So again, you look at Gong, Outreach, and some of these other companies. Uh, what they're saying here is that, and I'll go to the last one, one case study by Gartner found that SDR appointment booking rates increased by five times after deploying conversation intelligence. Now, this is interesting because after watching that Gong demo, like, by the way, if you're listening to this or watching this, if you could watch a Gong demo, you should watch a Gong demo. It's amazing. You go down that rabbit hole, it's pretty. Once I saw what was in there, I go, I think I'm starting to believe this. Like if you look at what they're doing, you go, oh, okay, I can see how some of this works. It's not, it's not the um, like the panacea, right? It's not the ultimate, but you start seeing how we can actually guide your conversations with your team. And so for managers, I think it's a great tool if implemented correctly, of course. So let me ask you this, and I, yeah. I don't deny what you're saying. I love Gong as sure. a brand. Sure. Um, yeah. You tons of management experience. Clearly, a, a world leading expert in the sales space, right? If you were managing a team of SDRs, would you expect Gong, Chorus, whoever it is, you use their product, would you expect a five times increase in bookings if you were coaching them in the first place? I would say yes, based on what I've saw. I, like literally, I was like, whoa, okay, I can see how, and by the way, not overnight, but the adjustments you can make and the level of, gr the granularity you can get here with conversations was, was mind blowing. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was, like I said, it opened my eyes and I go, oh, this is what people are investing in. That's what, remember we sometimes say, well, I don't know if we know enough. Mm -hmm. it, it gave me a glimpse into what they're talking about because if that's possible, call it 2X, call it 3X, why wouldn't companies want to buy this product? So, so I was, I, genuinely, I'm surprised you said that. I, I was going to go down the route of a crappy manager with some guidance or feedback now is going, poof, five times more uh, meetings booked. And I was expecting you to say, hey, my uh, expertise in the field, my experience in management, um, I don't know if you've ever managed SDR specifically, but you know, this, this is a thought exercise, right? Um, I would have thought that you would have said, no, my skill set as an expert, as a manager, would essentially el eliminate a lot of what Gong could offer. So it's incredible if you think that oh, you I could think, still I think... increase your your effectiveness in the, in the field. I'll state it the other way. It will take an average manager and make them a better manager. Sure. And look at it that way. Because of the data, it's not just intuition-based conversation. It's like, look, check out these conversations. Look what's being said here. Look what's being done here. And you can see that you could be an average manager and you can become a very good manager just by following the data. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I love it. And that was from demandgenreport.com, which you can find that article and all the realtors that we're talking about over at thisweekinsales.com. And let's move over to the Culture Corner. The Culture Corner, my favorite part of our conversation. And Will has something here that I'm dying to see where this one's going to go. So I'm going to read it verbatim from the doc here. I might even put a screenshot in the, the show notes of this episode. 
So this yep. is from NBCnews.com. How mm-hmm. this ex-sales exec found a wildly successful second career in hypnotherapy. <laughs> now, my line of text underneath this goes, blah, 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 bullshit story. The real question is, has Victor ever been hypnotized? And is it real, Victor, hypnotizing people? Yes. I got an example. <laughs> true, true story, true story. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, we did a couple's night out, right? A friend of mine, his wife, my wife. But they had, I guess the guy's niece was in from out of town, right? So anyway, we go we go to this show and we have dinner. And after that, we're going to go to see this hypnosis show. And we're all the way in the back, like one of those boots all the way in the back, right? And so I've seen hypnotists on the college market, but I've never really, like like you, I was like, nah, really? Is it just pretend? What is that, right? So anyway, we're, we're sitting at the dinner table all the way in the back. Like we got some distance from this, uh, this hypnotist. And then he says, da-da-da, when I say this word, and he got da da you know, da-da-da, bark, right? Like rough type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes through the whole routine. He does this, and you forget about it. And then like five, 10 minutes later, he comes back, and he says the, the whatever that, that the, the word, and the niece at our table starts barking. She'd been quiet all evening. She starts barking. We're like, what the hell? <laughs> well, we're like freaking out. I mean, and after she barks, she's like caught herself. Like, what did I just do that? It was the most amazing thing. So that leads me to believe that there are people who are susceptible to hypnosis. What that percentage is, I bet you it's very low. So I my, think it's very my low. question is, and then are you familiar with Darren Brown? No. Okay. I don't think I'm so. going to send you a link. I'll include a link in the show notes of the show okay. as well. He is a, uh, what does he call himself? He's not a hypnotist. He basically, and it's not, it's not, uh, he's not a magician. He's something in between where he tells you what he was doing, but then does something else and then tricks and, and sex expectations that like, it meets in different ways. It's amazing. Uh, it's, um, Send me the link. Send me the link. Hey, but you didn't answer the question. You didn't so, answer so the question. So let me, let me finish this. So I'm going to send you Darren okay. Brown. I've got tickets to see him and it was cancelled in the pandemic. I love his shows. He does these amazing, amazing stage shows where he gets people up on stage doing these incredible things. And it's not the, it's mm-hmm. not like making people bark or making people pretend to be chickens on stage. Yeah. It's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's done some shows where he's hypnotized people subtly over the course of weeks and months. And he's got people to rob... Uh, uh, to find weapons and to arm rob, uh, arm rob, I, um, kind of. I, I uh, think I, I think I've seen this guy. Sure. Keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. And, 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 and rob uh, armed vehicles. Uh, he had one where he convinced a young chap that he was in the middle of a zombie, a zombie apocalypse, and he he <laughs> believed it, and it's incredible. And I won't ruin the ending for it, but there's always a ethical reason for him to create these scenarios, and it's always a positive outcome for the individual at the end of it. He convinced a fella who was uh, scared of flying to get on a plane, which was incredible. And then he hypnotizes him, get him, gets him off the plane, puts him in a simulator, wakes him up, and then goes, you're going to have to fly it. And this fella lands this Whoa. plane. It's amazing. He's got all these specials. Um, oh, maybe he's so not as uh, as a celebrity in the US, but he's massive here right. in the UK, right? So I'll link to some of his shows. A lot of them are on YouTube. Right. But all that said... How much of it is being hypnotized, being out of control? You, your mind is somewhere else and your body's doing one thing. And how much of it is just social pressure? That to be a, if you to don't do like this, you're going to look like a dick. And so the person on stage is going, uh, you know, even, even if it's they, they buy into it. 
Well, I guess the, the, the hypnotist I've seen, especially when I started out speaking in the college market, they would do little tests throughout and they would say, no, you're, you're not really under, get off stage. And they would start eliminating people mm -hmm. till they got down. They would start out with 20 and maybe get down to two people. So they would look for ways to eliminate it. So I think it's real. Like they've, they're out of their brains at that point. Somebody has hijacked the mind. I, I, see, I'm not sure. I've said everything I've said about Darren Brown and his amazing shows. I think a uh, lot of it is you get the right person at the right time with the right pressure that they don't want to make you look stupid on stage by not doing what the, what you're supposed to do. And they almost just give their free will to you as opposed to your mind switched off. You're in some kind of like weird state. Because surely they could put people, I don't know if this has been done, but you could put people in a functional MRI machine and you'd see different brain activity if they were hypnotized sure. versus not. This is ultimately still. I get, but but I I guess I've seen hypnotists, and I mean you could be right. I mean I, we don't know, but I've seen hypnotists have people do stuff on stage that no amount of peer pressure would make you do that. I don't you know. know. <laughs> I think peer pressure is is incredible, incredibly effective at making people uh, do stuff. Well, you know, because we're trying to keep this PG rated, I'm just telling you, I've seen some stuff and I go, okay, unless you're a different individual, that is some weird stuff that you're doing <laughs> on stage. Do you know what I mean? Like, whoa. So anyway, but I'll, I'll look him up. So he's a comedian slash hypnotist. A, a magician. It's, it's magician. called something. I can't, the word is escaping me though. It'll come to me in five minutes when we wrap up the show. Of course sure. it will. Um, but he uses misdirection. He uses what he calls hypnotism, whether it is or not. He'll say he's doing one thing and it looks like a magic trick, but really he's doing three other things and he's doing, I, I don't want to ruin any of the stage shows because I want, I want you to watch them. I want you to give us feedback on it. Um, but yeah, but the, the point of all this, Victor, was if you had this ability to hypnotize people, hypnotize people, would you use it in the sales process? Man, every day. <laughs> <laughs> every day all the time you know pre during post i would use it all the time if i could hypnotize people i would use that superpower like you would believe i would be very abusive with it i just want to be open about that <laughs> well there's the assertive american uh, the, the like, truth oh, yeah. being just, just thrown out there whereas oh, i'm going yeah. i'd probably do the same but yeah. i wouldn't tell anyone yeah, Will's pissing me off. Will, look into my eyes. Will, look into my eyes. You're pissing me off right now. Look into my eyes. Okay. Well, but, talking about Inception, Victor. Talking about multiple crazy things going on at the same time. Tell us about your presentation at Outbound. So Outbound, I said I was going to do a presentation within a presentation, and I used the uh, the Inception model as an example because people were looking at me like like I had three heads. Like, what what are you going to do? So here's what I did. Well, uh, like I said, when the video's ready, I'll let you see it. So I did something unusual, total pattern interrupt. The speaker before me uh, was a little more sedate than I wanted to, more calming. I, I needed the audience a little up. So sure. what I did was, there's a 30-second video that shows me doing all kinds of cool things. I look awesome. And then I come on stage, right? So I came on stage, and I didn't get the response I want, which I totally expected, right? So I said, look, dear audience, I got a great, I got a badass presentation. I got a kick-ass presentation. I've been working on this presentation for at least two, three weeks now. It's so good. I'm almost afraid to give it to you. And I come out here and I get this tepid response. That's not going to work for me. I'm going to go back off stage and we're going to do the intro all over again. When I come back out, I want a totally different response. It actually worked. <laughs> and so people were like, what is he doing? He's just, <laughs> so I just walked right back off stage and they ran the video again and I came back out to a different reception. Then I did a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I talked to the audience. Uh, I gave away one of my pens. Uh, you know, I said, how many years you've been in sales for the person who has been in sales for many years? And then I said, all right, now I'm going to introduce the presentation within the presentation. And I talked about Inception. And I said, I set up a second microphone where I would do my inner voice. So there's a second microphone that I walk to. 
And so, and I said, okay, so this is going to be, I'm going to do two presentations. I got a regular presentation, but my inner voice is going to narrate the actual presentation. And then I said, let me show you how this works. And I actually walk over to the mic and I said, all right, now I just started this. Here's how Victor started out. He first came out, did the intro, then he ran back because he didn't like the introduction. Then he came back and then he said, okay, that's a good introduction. Let's go forward. Then he did this and then he does and they gave away the pen. All this is basically sucking up to you at this point before he jumps into the actual presentation. Now I think he's ready to jump into the presentation. Then I go back and do the presentation and I kept jumping in and out of the row. So it was the first ever presentation within a presentation. One guy called it Sales Inception. I agree. I love good. it. There's, it was <clears throat> there's a stand-up comedy routine. Uh, Neil Brennan, are you familiar with him? Mm -mm. So it, I think the the it's on Netflix. I think this comedy special was called Three Mics, and it's not it's not dissimilar to what you're doing. Um, but you should check that out. Um, Neil it, it, Brennan, I know this guy. This guy works with Dave Chappelle. He's funny. His sense of humor is so dry. So he did that. I think he's a writer for the. Chappelle show, for the or, Chappelle or, show, or, yeah. or whatever he's no, doing right. before, and this was his kind of breakout um, thing that he did on himself. And I think he said he would never do another one after this. So it's quite introspective. It's quite dark, um, but it's it's a, not a dissimilar concept. You might get a kick out of it. But I love it. Oh, by the way, I, I have to give credit to the the originator of the idea, the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan is, is an American comedian who does this. He does a thing that he under his voice he talks about. Did I just really say that? Could that be possible? <laughs> and that's where I got it from. I go, okay, now if I can do that in speaking, uh, it's it. interesting. But by, by the way, final note on comedians. Have you discovered Jimmy Carr or is it just me being late to the party? So Jimmy Carr is a celebrity in the UK. He's always on like chat shows. He's always on quiz shows and that kind of thing. Yeah. I love Jimmy Carr. I've been consuming it for the last like two weeks. I've been consuming his content like a madman. He's a great comedian. I love him. You should, have he's you checked out comedian. any of his heckler videos on YouTube? Oh, they're great, yeah, man. He's great with hecklers. His, by the way, his one-liners are so mm -hmm. beautiful. And then you, he's one of these guys that gives you a one-liner and you don't know you've been insulted until like five minutes later. You know? And it's like he's so, and then he has that weird little laugh that he does. <laughs> he does <laughs> something like that. Victor, <laughs> I've, awesome. got, I've got something that's going to, it's going to break you. I genuinely, Watch this. It's barely even a comedy special. It's a piece of art, right? It's film. And I came out the other side of it. I wanted to talk to you about it on the show. So I'm, gl I'm glad we got into uh, comedy here. I literally came out the other side of it feeling slightly uncomfortable about my existence. Have you heard of... <laughs> I'm not... I'm, I'm not... I'm deadly serious. I'm not even joking. I'm not even kidding, well, Victor. Have you I heard of Bo Burnham? I came out the other side. What did you say with that? I came out the other side questioning my existence. Yep. <laughs> yep. My, I questioned the, my existence. My, what, uh, what is the point of me being here? Uh, why am I just I wasting my time? What? I think my mental health is fine. Maybe yeah. it isn't fine. I'm not uh, even maybe kidding. I don't wanna, maybe I don't want to look this guy. What's his name again? His name is Bo Burnham. I'll send you a link. I'll put it in the show notes. He's just released a Netflix special. It's called Inside. Without ruining any of it, it, the premise is that Bo Burnham's comedy routines are all musical routines. So he plays a song, and typically the song is silly, it's hilarious, and then he hits you with something weird, dark, and uncomfortable, and makes you feel, um, it changes your kind of uh, paradigm about something. And then it goes back to light, happy, ridiculous stuff, and then it goes a little bit weird again. Well, he, okay, we're gonna have to we're, we're gonna have to talk about this guy after I watch it next week yep. again. Go we'll ahead, we'll do it as homework for the audience as well. We'll uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll cover it again next week. But genuinely, I'm gonna watch it again probably uh, over the weekend with with my partner. She hasn't seen it yet, uh, but she's sick of me he talk, hearing me talk about it. I genuinely came out the other side of it slightly uncomfortable, 
uh, questioning my own <laughs> mental health, which I, th- I think is fine, but maybe it isn't. And it made me question a bunch of stuff, all from Mama. these ridiculous songs that he's, 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 he's cobbled together in okay. one room at the bottom of his garden in a oh, shed. Man. I guess I... I, I... Okay, now, now, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm yeah. going to watch it this weekend. Okay. So I won't say any more, uh, and I'd love to get your genuine uh, opinion on it, but I think it's, you know, I've, I've never seen anything like it, and I, I'm no, I've got no, I don't think he would ever do anything better than it. This is like his one like wow. moment, and it was incredible. Oh, okay. Uh, I got it. It's called Inside. Got it. Bo Burton, Inside. All right. Finish this off, Will. Cool. The final thing I just wanted to make a note of, I've just done a post on LinkedIn. Uh, we could record this on Thursday, so it might be a few days ago uh, by the time you are listening to this episode of This Week in Sales. If you are, I'm, I'm calling it an independent sales podcaster. If you're an independent content creator within the sales space, um, as in you're not working for Gong and, and creating content on their behalf, it, or you could, within your contract, create content on your own time without being affiliated with the brand that you work for. Um, I would like to speak with you because we're looking at hiring, collaborating, um, acquiring, if it's appropriate, some new uh, podcasters, some content creators. Uh, We want to grow our portfolio over at salesman.org. And so if that resonates to you, or if you think there's anyone that fits that that space, drop me an email personally, will at salesman.org. And I'd love to have a quick chat with you and see see what's up. And if nothing else, maybe I can help you with with your own um, career, with your own kind of content creation efforts. Hopefully I can add a bit of value there, if nothing else, on on a call. So there we go. That's my only uh, shout out for this show. Anything you want to wrap up with, Victor? I do not. I have nothing to wrap up with. Uh, I love your rugby shirt. Can I say that? You can. Is that is that an official rugby shirt? Uh, this is a non-official rugby shirt. This is a expensive okay. rugby shirt uh, that is in a slim fit because I, I've never shared this with you before. I played one game of rugby, Victor, when mm. I was a kid. I was fifteen. <laughs> I got clobbered and, and tore my cruciate ligament, and I've never, I've ne- I literally have no cruciate ligament in my left knee now, and it's scuppered me oh, the whole of my oh, life. Uh, oh, doing man. half marathons, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, playing basketball. I've had issues all from that one friggin' rugby game. Um, wow. So there we go. So no, it's not a uh, an England rugby shirt or anything like that. It is a, a just <laughs> an overly expensive, nice fitting rugby shirt uh, that I bought online the other day. Looks good on you, brother. It's, it's dog proof. That's the reason I've got it. He's torn apart a bunch of my uh, Ralph Lauren polo That's shirts funny. recently by just That's licking funny. me and uh, inadvertently catching his teeth and stuff. So yeah, so I've just gone for it. All I wear now is uh, cheap chinos and rugby shirts. Love it. Love it, man. <laughs> well, there we go. We'll wrap up with that. That was This Week in Sales. Everything that we talked about is available in the show notes over at thisweekinsales.com. You can leave a message for myself or Victor. Slag off, Victor. Give me praise. If you've got any content you'd like us to cover, any sales news, do drop it in the form on thisweekinsales.com. And uh, that was Victor Antonio, sales legend. My name is Will Barron, founder of sales.org, and we'll speak with you next week.